Welcome to the State of the Lakers podcast with Raj. You guys know him as at Unwritten Rules on Twitter. Raj, good morning, man. How are you doing so far today? Good morning. We've got the uh, all-star break going on here, so we're all kind of in a break as well. Um, Drake dropped some music yesterday, so uh, that was fun. I saw you also listen to it, so we're it's a, it's a good morning here in, in Cali. Yeah, I woke up at 4:20 this morning as I usually do on Monday, Wednesday, Friday to play basketball and I was it helps to have something like that when you're uh having trouble waking up in the morning. Um <laughs> since you and I last talked, the Lakers had uh an impressive win against the Warriors, one that you and I predicted based solely on the fact that we knew Dennis Schroeder was so valuable uh to everything that the Lakers needed to do. Uh, especially as it pertained to their roles and guys uh, kind of slotting into their proper roles. And then, of course, immediately after that, Marcus all goes into uh, uh, health and safety protocols, which we don't know what's going on with that yet. And Kyle Kuzma has a a heel contusion. And so right when we could have had a a pretty good indicator of the of the Lakers, you know, with Dennis against a better team than the Warriors and the Suns, they go out there completely undermanned and lay an egg and, and lose to the Suns. And then LeBron sits out uh, the uh, the other day against Sacramento and they take a loss. So not too much to take away from that. Feels especially frustrating when you factor in the fact that the Jazz have tricked off four of their last seven games and the Clippers have been losing. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of an opportunity here uh, to get back in the mix of things. Could be worse at this point mm-hmm. in the season than being a half game back of first place and or half game back of second place and, and three and a half games back of first. But it did uh, feel kind of like a missed opportunity. We are going to save uh, everything having to do with like a total season, you know, rehash of the Lakers for next week, uh, you know, as we're in the all-star break. Uh, and we're going to just kind of we'll, we'll build we'll do a mailbag. We're going to do some player grades. We're going to do everything under the sun, just kind of rehashing the whole season. But we kind of want to focus on but today. We're going to focus on just what happened in this last week. And then we're going to focus on a little bit of what we think roster upgrades might look like uh, for the Lakers. So my first question for Raj to start this off today is yesterday I sent out a poll and all I did was send out a poll. People were mad at me. And I literally just asked a question, okay? And the question was, would you trade Talon Horton Tucker for P.J. Tucker? Now, the context of that simply was me thinking that there will probably be some kind of, of bidding war and you might have to give up THT. Maybe. That I've ju- and I'm not even saying necessarily that's the case, but I knew that was an option. So I was just presenting the question. So my question for you is, what was your reaction when you saw that poll that I sent out? Yeah, I was like, that's going to be a pretty one-sided poll. I mean, you have uh, Laker fans. First of all, everybody loves THT here. And the Lakers aren't in like a desperation mode, right? Like if they're in a desperate mode, then yeah, um, they would give up Taylor Horton Tucker. But he's, I feel like he's shown too much. He's also a part of Clutch. I mean, they're not going to send him to a that's franchise a that's that's falling off. Um, like I saw the Trez, somebody put up Trez for like, pj tucker as well I'm like there's no way trez is getting traded there with the clutch and all that comes in comes into play and uh also pj tucker's like 36 you know what i mean like you i just i would not want to send out 20 year old tht for uh pj tucker so when i saw that i was like man people are gonna really gonna take that into one side i knew where you were going with it i feel like you were thinking like young player for vet kind of win now move but um yeah i just don't i don't i don't see that i don't see that happening pj tucker's a nice nice player i just he hasn't shown anything. Well, I mean, 
you can't really say that because it's a conversation we're going to get into. But, um, I mean, for right now, he's not shooting well. I mean, it's all situation-wise. I feel like if he gets bought out, then, yeah, there's a conversation. I just don't think THT is the guy to give up right now. He's really the Lakers' only asset, really, mm-hmm. if we think about it that way. They don't really have anyone else that's a chip in that way. I don't think they'll give it up for P.J. Tucker. Because there's something funky with Kuzma's contract that makes him hard to trade, right? I can't remember what it is, but it's uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. But I, I, I used to be that it was Kuzma, you know, and THT. I would say Caruso is kind of an asset too, uh, mm-hmm. but they definitely don't have a ton of assets, and THT is certainly their best asset. So the whole premise for my whole, you know, devil's advocate type approach that I took yesterday is the simple fact that the margin for error for the Lakers this year is less than it was last year, which is crazy because the Lakers got better. But the problem is, is everybody around the league got better. You know, the Clippers, we, we've kind of slandered them at length on this podcast in addition to other podcasts that I've been on. But the truth is, is that with Nick Batum and, and Serge Ibaka, they're a better basketball team. Not to mention any team coming off of an embarrassing loss usually comes back the next year really better. Look at Portland. They get embarrassed by New Orleans. They come back next year and make the Western Conference Finals. You know, you look at the San Antonio Spurs. They blow that game. They come back. You know, the, every uh, every team has a tendency to kind of rally around each other when something really bad happens and, and they play better. Uh, you have Philly looks like a bona fide contender. I talked about them yesterday as a team that crosses all three boxes. They're elite defensively. They put a ton of pressure on the rim and they have shooters. So it's a team that, that, that is interesting to me in that regard. And then Brooklyn, obviously. And then even these Utah and Phoenix teams have kind of added something to the mix. The, the, the level of good that the Lakers need to be to win this year, it's, it's at a higher level than it was last year. And so from that perspective, what I look at a guy like P.J. Tucker as is, is a guy that, that, that fills a specific need that very well could increase your chances of winning the title by a few percentage points, which in, with a margin of error being as small as it is, could be the difference maker. Now, I agree that he's old. But as we're going to talk about here more in a second, you know, I think there's plenty of examples over the last few years that that guys who are are playing in bad situations have a tendency to just let the rope slip, let the rope slip. And then when they get reengaged in a good situation, begin to look more like themselves. And P.J. Tucker, quite simply is one of the best corner three-point shooters in the league. He's not a good overall three-point shooter, but there's an easy need for the Lakers to have somebody in the corner that can knock down shots, and he's another body to throw at a Kawhi or at a Paul George or even a bigger forward uh, in the league that he might be able to 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 cause some physical problems for. So so tell me why you don't believe in P.J. Tucker necessarily as, uh, as, a, as a contributor at this point. Yeah, I mean, I I got to watch, you know, the Lakers played Houston last year in the second round. Um, and P.J. Tucker was awesome. I mean, he was their small ball five, um, but he he's not keeping up with those wings at that age right now. He's, what, like 36. And um, we talk about those vets that are kind of in bad situations. They're usually not this old. They're usually like around maybe 32, 33. I feel like 36 is pretty, pretty high up there. And P.J. Tucker is a guy with a lot of mileage on him. And uh, he's a corner shooter, right? He's a, he's going to sit there and shoot corner threes. Um, he's not going to take it off the dribble. Um, he's not going to, you know, create any kind of offense. He's just going to stand there. And I feel like the Lakers have players like that. Um, Wes Matthews is probably not 
as good a shooter, but I feel like he fills that kind of defender role. And uh, again, to get PJ Tucker, I feel like it's going to have to be in a trade. And I just don't think the Lakers are going to give up anything for him. And we we saw yesterday at the All Star draft, um, we saw LeBron kind of take a take a crap on Utah there. Uh, but like, <laughs> Just to bring that around here, the Lakers shouldn't have to um, go and trade, right? They're they're a place that people are going to want to come to. They're going to be a free agent. Uh, they're going to be a buyout market place that people are going to come and play for. And I feel like that's where their market is going to be. Giving up THT for a couple months of PJ Tucker just does not like. I understand the margin of error might be a little smaller this year. I, I might kind of contest to that, um, but uh, uh, because AD's missed like 14 games and the standings are still as close as they are, but. Even with the margin error, I don't think PJ Tucker solves that margin of error too high. Like, how much is he playing in a Brooklyn Nets series? Like, I really like that's the team to me that I want to look at here. The Clippers and Lakers, we know kind of the matchups are. I think in a Brooklyn series, I don't know how much PJ Tucker is playing, and I think that's where you're looking at here. You don't want to sign guys for a few months or you know for a first round series or something like that. That's where my issue is with PJ Tucker. So, but how much is Talon Horton Tucker going to be playing? Like, I mean, I, a part of this for me, and for the record, I'm not necessarily saying, I don't even know what my answer would be to that poll because there are a number of different things that, that make it complicated. For instance, Talon Horton Tucker's salary doesn't match up with PJ Tucker. So you've got to add additional players. And when you're hard capped, that can be a problem. Um, uh, in addition to that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that, that either Talon Horton Tucker or PJ Tucker will be will be relatively usable in a in a specific playoff matchup against some of the best teams in the league. You know, that said all I'm saying is like I I, be, I personally was very high on Talon Horton Tucker about a month and a half ago. Um there, he went through a stretch where he was defending extremely well, he was attacking closeouts well, he was simplifying his game and and he did a good job within that specific role. Um, but I mean, what's really been disappointing to me as of late is I don't think either Frank or really any, you know, any of his teammates can, can count on Talon Horton Tucker to do his job defensively, which has been frustrating because we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, two podcasts ago, but he's not defending, uh, very well in pick and roll. He's, he's getting caught on screens too much, which is something he needs to work on. He's losing his focus and help defense and getting caught, you know, there was a play. Uh, uh, there was a play against Phoenix the other night where you know basic backdoor cut from I think it was Jay Crowder, and he's just he's just he's he's not. You're supposed to have an eye on man and ball is what they always teach you when you're when you're coming up in the game, and he didn't have an eye on either. Like he was kind of like looking back and forth, looking back and forth, but then the guy cut behind him and he just wasn't paying attention. It was like he was kind of sort of like uh, 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 just towing that line in no man's land, and he got beat. And so from that standpoint, like. What I'm saying is I, I feel relatively certain that the perceived value within some corners of Lakers Twitter, that THT is this future star, I feel relatively certain that that's not the case. Now, I feel like I'm in the minority there. Um, I think he's a good player, but I don't necessarily see the, the, the same ceiling that everybody else sees. And so you know me, I've got a core philosophy here, which is like, don't get caught trying to tow both lines of the current era and the future to the point where you get, you know, where you get yourself beat, you know, because it's like everyone goes like, well, what about the Spurs? You know, a team that consistently kind of did both. And it's like, yeah, but is Talon Horton Tucker Kawhi? Because I don't think Talon Horton Tucker's Kawhi, you know. But I, that, that's just my take. I, I'm lower on THT than other Laker fans, and 
And that makes it so that, and again, I'm not saying I'd necessarily giving up, give him up for PJ Tucker, but I think, I think a lot of fan bases act like this and I'm not necessarily of the opinion that he should be untouchable, but you do make a good point. You and Ben Rosales brought this up yesterday, this idea that the Lakers aren't desperate. And I agree. We talked about this a lot last week, you know, when AD comes back and everyone's healthy, this is still the best team in basketball. So there's no reason to overextend yourself. All I said from the beginning was, is like, I would, I would be, I would at least think heavily about moving someone like THT for a really solid veteran piece because of the fact that the margin for error is less this year and something silly like allowing LeBron to save his legs so that he doesn't have to guard Kawhi in a playoff series, you know, something silly like that might be the difference this year. It might not be. The Lakers might just be better, but mm-hmm. it might be the difference this year. So that that's kind of where I, I kind of toe the line, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like if there's a right trade out there, then, you know, you can make it for THT. I, I'm not in the camp that THT is untouchable. I was lower on him than most. I, well, I'm not a draft guy, so I really don't even try with those kind of things. I was kind of lower on him. But watching him this season, I – you know, I got excited too. You, how can you not? You watch him kind of dominate in the uh, in the preseason and kind of go go off. And you see the ball handling skills. Like against Sacramento, uh, there was no one else, so they just ran high ball screen after high ball screen for him, and he was comfortable. And you could see like he was in his lab, able to drive and kick and dish. And you know, I feel like the Lakers see him as that kind of player. They want to develop him, and I don't think for the PG record, kind of, really quick, Sacramento is a horrifically bad team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They have a lot. They have a lot of bigger issues than just basketball, in my opinion. They they have a they have a they have a lot of issues. But yeah, just seeing THG get to go to work and have fun. You can see like on defense. I, I get your point with that, but to me, he's twenty. Like I just don't know how many twenty year olds are contributing on a title team, like a title team, um, especially you know at that age. And uh, he really didn't play that much his rookie year either, so he's still really new. And um, I'm not gonna really kill him for that. Uh, I feel like his defense was fine. He was playing next to like AD and you know, in those lineups, but right. He was good yeah. for a while. Yeah. But right now it's just accountability with those guys, but he just, yeah. he's been, he's lost his focus lately. Yeah. Right now he's lost. I mean, he doesn't know where he's supposed to be. You can see a lot of communication issues as well. Him and Kuz and Trez are always kind of like, Hey, that was your rotation. He's like, I'm trying to stop the guy at the rim and his guys open <laughs> for three. So a lot of things like that happen. Um, so I, I still really believe in him um, defensively and, yeah, I just don't think PJ Tucker is the right trade for it. But I'm like, I'm kind of on your side there. I'm, I don't think he's untouchable. Like, if there's a right move out there, then you make it. You don't, uh, you don't hold yourself for that if that's going to help you win the title. I just don't think there are many moves out there that are going to create the big margin uh, that's going to help you in the playoffs here. For sure, and there's not minutes available for some sort of large exactly. role type of thing. I, I, I'm just saying, like. You know, okay, so for instance, like one of the things I saw yesterday from somebody that uh, on Twitter that I follow, I can't, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name right now, so I apologize in advance, but the, uh, someone that I followed for a while who knows this stuff, and he was bringing up the fact that, that in Houston, in the playoffs, that, that PJ had started to struggle a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what bothered me about that is like, you know, I, th- Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure P.J. Tucker led the league in corner three-point percentage last year. So it was a specialty of his, which, for the record, it's a significantly different shot. Like, when I'm shooting a 20-footer versus a 20-footer, it's a significantly different shot. There's a, it's, a, it's a different, uh, uh, you know, the easiest way I can describe it is like a, uh, an NBA, you know, wing or a top-of-the-key three-point shot is like a full-body shot. 
whereas a uh, where you have to get a lot of lift, whereas the corner shot is a shot that is a little bit more of a set shot. It's a little bit right. more of something that if you if you really jumped crazy high and got a ton of lift, it would actually throw you off a little bit on that shot. And so uh, from that standpoint, you know, I don't think it's fair to discount his entire season of shooting based on the fact that the Lakers, who are one of the best three-point defenses in the league, made P.J. struggle a little bit. Like, that to me isn't a fair assessment necessarily because, you know, it's like Marcus Gasol. Everyone's like, oh, Marcus Gasol can't shoot. He shot poorly in the playoffs last year for Toronto. And it's like, well, he shot really well all season. He just was on a team that didn't have a lot of offensive creation. And so when they ran into some elite defenses in the playoffs, he wasn't getting the same shot quality. You know, and, and ironically, like, Marcus Gasol has been shooting the hell out of the basketball as of late. Uh, but I just... I think like, you know, uh, the, the limited minutes, cause he would come into LA and he'd play probably 15 to 20 minutes a game. The overall shot quality that he would get, I think would rejuvenate him. And so this is a good point. Cause we're going to, we're going to segue to Blake Griffin here in a second and what that would look like. And I think, so there are dozens of examples cause there's a difference between what I was talking about with Tommy yesterday, which is, you know, uh, younger players, playing on really good teams and struggling. Think like a Kelly Oubre with this Warriors team or like a, uh, a Rodney Hood or a Jordan Clarkson with the 2018 Cavs and they're struggling and there's a tendency to kind of point fingers and be like, why is this guy struggling? Why is this guy struggling? Well, that has to do with the fact that they're young and they're struggling trying to find a way to fit in that offense. But right. with veterans, guys in their late 30s who are stuck in bad situations – who come out of bad situations and go into good situations and start playing around high IQ basketball players, I don't think we can I don't think it's possible to overstate how much that can reinvigorate people. I don't have any sort of receipt or anything because I remember not necessarily talking about it, but I was pretty confident that Nick Batum was going to be fine when he came back to uh, the Clippers. Why? Because I wanted the Cavs to get him. Uh, when they were floating around that Colin Sexton pick. And the truth of the matter is, is Nick Batum is, uh, brings very translatable skills, right? Like he can shoot, he's big and, and pretty athletic, and he can put the ball on the floor, make basic basketball reads. So obviously, if you stick him on a bad basketball team where the collective IQ is low, those skills aren't really going to manifest themselves. As we talk about all the time with the Lakers, their role players play a simplified version of the game because of what Dennis, LeBron, and AD do. They put them in situations where they're basically doing a closeout drill, where they're, they're attacking against every defensive player at a disadvantage. Those sorts of things with a smart veteran player who brings translatable skills, I think, reinvigorate them. And I think we have lots of examples of that over the years. Like even, oh, this is the last example I'll use, and then I'll hand it over to you. Like, even Tyson Chandler last year, for him it was a health issue. Or two years ago, I'm sorry. For him it was a health issue. Uh, he couldn't stay on the court for the Lakers. But even when he was out there, like, just having a guy who wouldn't completely urinate down his leg when he was on the court at the center position, like, really helped them. And there, and there were numbers, there were advanced metrics that showed that when Tyson Chandler was on the floor, the Lakers played really well that year. It was just he struggled with health. And that might have been the most washed version of this type of situation, if that makes sense. 
Right. But like my only thing with Nick Batoon, I mean, the rims are still 10 feet high in Charlotte as they are in L.A. Um, it's not like he was playing for the veterans minimum in Charlotte. He was making 30 million a year. So like I don't know if it's an excuse to be like, I just don't care. Um, that's the one that's really shocked me. I did not think he would. I, I thought he would be like in the rotation. I didn't think he'd be starting and hitting threes and, you know, going off the dribble and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting when you look at his environment and moving over and you kind of like move that to anyone else. Um, I wonder if that's more like the exception than the rule but um the guy i was looking at is blake griffin i think we were going to kind of segue to him um i went because nba.com you can go and like look at every assist right so you can go and look at a guy's assist and they'll just video out the assist and what to look at is like they're very generous with the assists so like blake griffin would have like a six assist game and four of them are literally him just swinging to jeremy grant who does like a three dribble move up and under layup and i'm like man he really didn't do anything with that and like a lot of them are of that or he'll just like kick it to a a shooter and he'll pump fake step back three and he'll get the assist for that so I went and tried to rewatch the Laker Pistons game and that's a game I think Blake actually tried I think he's gonna try against those big big opponents and um, what I saw is like is a guy that he's obviously lost his athleticism but he's a guy who can hit open threes he can run a little bit of pick and roll uh, he can handle it Um, he plays a lot out of the post which i think kind of fits this team i'd like to see him next to a guy like ad that's a guy i think i would like to go for he's like 32 years old kind of in a really bad situation is he really um, only 32 he yes i'm i'm gonna like 100 percent check that but i'm pretty <laughs> sure i checked that yesterday uh he has a reputation around the league as a corpse He's actually, I gave him an extra year. He's 31. So even, that, <laughs> even man. more. Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of, it's crazy. So, and it, I mean, you look at him. I mean, he came to the league even before DeAndre or after DeAndre Jordan. I can't remember who's starting on the net. So I, I can see him being a contributor. And again, he's a guy that's going to get bought out. You don't have to really do much. And I think it's a like a low risk, high reward kind of player. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like he'll, that's the kind of guy. And again, like we talked about with PJ Tucker, the minutes just aren't there. Like Trez right now with all these guys out is playing, still played only 20 minutes a game with AD out, Mark out, still only playing like 20, 25 minutes a game. So look, if you look at the minutes, I just don't see there being too many minutes there to have, uh, on this team. That's a guy I would like to see them go after for sure. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because like a, a Blake Griffin move is kind of an identity change uh, for the team in a certain sense because like you 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 kind of tried to to slot him into a combination of what you've been giving minutes to uh, to Keith and uh, uh, Trez and Marcus All. Now, right. w- like for instance, like you can't count on on Blake Griffin to be as you know as active in rotations defensively as a Montrez can. He doesn't have the motor. He doesn't have the foot speed. Uh, uh, you can't count on him to be the same physical rim protector that Marcus Gasol is. He's not big enough. He can't jump as high anymore. Uh, but what he does give you, in my opinion, is kind of like a slightly better version of what you've been getting from Markeith. Um, like, if you think about what Markeith brings to the table, which is like he, he's kind of a corner three-point shooter kind of guy, too. He's he's done a good job in post defense. He's he has struggled in in rotations. But if you if you, if the teams that try to isolate Markeith on the block, like he actually does a good job of holding his own. You know, I think Blake would slot into that role perfectly, and mm-hmm. and I would argue that he's a little bit better of a shooter, and then a little bit better with the ball in his hands as, as he as he puts the ball on the floor. And again, everything has to be quantified with the with the with the type of shot quality that they're going to get. You know, 
the Lakers are dead last in three-point shooting over the last 15 games. They're shooting about 30%. It's awful, 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 like horrific, <laughs> horrific stuff. Um, but I think the main reason for that has to do with the fact that with AD out and with LeBron kind of being on cruise control as of late, they're just not, and with Dennis being out for as long as he was, they're just not putting any pressure on the rim, which right. is not which is not creating the same high-quality looks that they were getting when AD was playing. Because early in the season, the Lakers shot well. And so from that standpoint, like when everybody gets back, you know, Blake Griffin's going to be one of the guys that gets left alone. And, you know, we're going to transition here in a minute to kind of talking about the Lakers trapping defense. And, you know, one of the points that I'm going to make is that, you know, everybody talks with the Lakers like you got to make you eventually they're going to make these guys make shots because they're going to uh, uh, they're going to, you know, trap LeBron or double LeBron and they're going to double AD. And the Lakers are going to do the same thing to other teams with their defense, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that's how it's going to be in a playoff series. They're going to they're going to relentlessly attack specific matchups with LeBron and AD and guys like Blake Griffin, you know, uh, are going to be able to to make plays off the dribble in space as they put the ball on the floor. And I, I think if you can get him in the buyout market, I mean, there's obviously no way they're going to trade for him. The salaries would be impossible. Mm-hmm. But if you could get him in the buyout market, like I see him as a pretty clean swap. The only thing that would get tr- trouble from there is then Markeith almost entirely falls out of the rotation, which makes it tough to kind of figure out how you work that out because he's complained in the past about not being in the rotation. Yeah, and I think Blake would have to earn those minutes. I mean, just on this team, he's not going to come here and kind of demand minutes. But uh, yeah, he'd have to earn those and if he's playing better than Markeith, then he plays. I mean, that's just how it goes. Markeith, I think, would understand that. Um, he started some games in the bubble, right, in the playoffs, and uh, and some games he didn't play. So that's how I see it. And Blake, man, like, he was a super, he was a star in this league. Like, those kind of guys, I feel like they're not just going to go out off on a wimp, right? Like, they're not just going to fall out of the league, in my opinion. Like, those guys want to prove something. We saw it with Dwight Howard last year, and I don't think Blake is even close. I think Dwight was a lot closer to his athletic uh, peak than uh, Blake is right now but you know those kind of guys that they, they know how to play and uh, Blake was never like a great defender but he's a smart defender he knows where to be where he's supposed to be he doesn't put a crazy amount of pressure on the rim but what's interesting to me re-watching a few Pistons game which I don't recommend at all because those are not fun games to watch but people do send like doubles at him still which is kind of funny like so he'll go in the post and people he's will strong. trap him Yes, and people will trap him, even though, like, even the numbers say, again, this is a numbers test kind of thing, but, like, the numbers say he's shooting, like, 40% on turnaround jumpers. But still, people come and double him, and he kicks it. He makes the right play. Guys cut off of it. Um, Again, he gets some kind of, uh, what's it called, assist that he probably shouldn't get. But still, like, he he makes the right play um, in those situations. So, again, in that second unit where offense is kind of struggling, I, I would like him to kind of, help that out i think he can be a he can be a secondary creator um but when everyone's healthy yeah i mean he he might be a luxury but i i think it's a guy that low risk high reward like you you can uh if, if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out but you can kind of test it and see if it does yeah and you know he's even setting basketball aside um blake's a star and he belongs exactly. in la and i know i it's on good authority for many people that he wants to be here and Thank God for Steve Ballmer burning the bridge so horrifically bad that he would never go back to the Clippers. Um, so, like, I, I would imagine, you know, I don't have any intel on this. Obviously, I'm not the intel kind of guy, but my gut tells me that he will be a Laker. 
um, just by virtue of the simple fact that there's intel out that he's going to get bought out, and all signs point to L.A. But the one thing that gets sketchy is there will be a conversation with Rob Palenka and Frank Vogel at some point talking about minutes. And as you and I both know, there is there is significant evidence in NBA history of buyout guys chasing minutes because they like to play basketball. And so that'll be the interesting part. Like I, you know, people would probably burn me at the stake for this too, but I would consider trading Trez for some shooting uh, if I knew for a fact that Blake Griffin was coming. Um, uh, Just because of the fact that I think they only have one additional buyout spot after Blake. And, uh, um, you know, and Montrez to me, as good as he's been this year, he's been exactly what we wanted him to be, which is an innings eater. A guy that can come, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Lakers on the short turnaround got blitzed by injuries in COVID. And the truth of the matter is, is Montrez was worth every penny to be the guy that could eat up a lot of those minutes. But that said, when push comes to shoves in, uh, shove in the playoffs, I don't necessarily see him as, as that much of an asset. Whereas, like, you know, Blake's got tons and tons of playoff reps. And uh, and his shooting helps with spacing in that specific type of environment. And then defensively, they're not the same. Uh, but my guess is that you could find a way to be similarly effective with Blake defensively that you would with a Montrez, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, my only issue, like I saw a lot of like, oh, I would trade Trez on uh, Twitter or whatever. Um, but I mean, this is not 2K. You know what I mean? Like we can't like uh, and also this is he's with clutch and all those kind of factors go in and uh yeah, I just don't see it happening. He took a pay cut to kind of be here, and uh, I wouldn't even think about it because there's just no way they're moving. They're moving trash. So you at think all. there's no chance at all whatsoever? That I just don't. Pay. I just don't see it. It's it's way too many things that would have to go wrong for that to happen. Um, it was funny. I was seeing like a, a Celtics fan being like, um, uh, "Yeah, I can't even put Tristan Thompson trade room <laughs> trade request because he's a clutch guy, and you can't screw over clutch." Which you know, I think he was talking kind of facetiously, but. Uh, that's kind of true. I mean, these are like relationships that people have built, you know, and it's just no way that he was get he would get traded in my opinion. Um he's he's uh he's too close with everyone, so I just don't see it. And he's played too well. I just I just don't see it happening. He's been as advertised and he hasn't complained. He's he's done his role, so I just don't see him getting moved. I would even argue he's been better than I thought he would be. Uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. It's just it's more just like a a fit thing. And, you know, and it may be as simple as like, you know, because the Lakers shooting has been, you know, the problem this last, you know, couple of months, yeah. month, really. And, and and really, if you look at the way the roster is built in their core lineups, you know, when KCP is actually playing like KCP, you know, mm-hmm. when when Wesley Matthews is shooting a league average like he should at this phase of his career, Kyle Kuzma's actually been better shooting the ball than he has in years past. When all these guys are actually playing like themselves, they are what they should be, which is an average three-point shooting team that should shoot really well at times because of the high quality of three-point shots that they get. So I, I, I don't necessarily see that as a problem. I'm just kind of floating these kinds of things out there. And truth of the matter is, with how old Marcus All is and with how old Blake Griffin is and with Anthony Davis being somewhat injury-prone this year, you know, Blake Griffin might be worth having just for depth. Uh, at that sure. position, uh, which is which is something to to uh, uh, to at least you know take a to, to, uh, to at least take a look at, even if you have to have a conversation with your players and and be like, look, like we're keeping you around for depth. Um, 
So I wanted to talk about uh, uh, you actually brought this up, so I should credit you. But to talk about the Lakers' defensive scheme. So you had, yeah, I'll let you actually lead this one off. So you had mentioned that you uh, uh, had something you wanted to say about the Lakers trapping the way they have in the last couple of games. What did you have in mind? Yeah, so it's funny because I remember when we recorded last week, uh, you said uh, something like, I think fans are going to be surprised how well they play when Schroeder comes back. I was like, well, I think they'll play better. I didn't think they played this good. But just, just like watching those. And Gasol ruined that for me, by the way. Yeah. Right, but like, <laughs> but for me, like, I focus on that Portland and Warriors game because I feel like they really wanted those two, and they had all their guys pretty much there except for uh, except for AD, obviously. And man, these trap like to me, Steph and Dame are the most dangerous thirty plus shooters in the league. Like, I don't know if there's anyone other than that. Maybe Luca when he's on, but Steph and Dame to me are the ones you have to guard that high up. And uh, obviously, Steph doesn't have the uh, supporting cast right now. Neither does Dame. But watching like Schroeder, first of all, him chasing screens like this, like it's funny when people think about the trapping defense. They think like anyone can just trap, and it's just not. It's just not true that not every team can play this style. So I was watching Schroeder kind of chase Steph and Dame around these screens, and Marcus Saul is at the level of the screen, right? And we have Steph and Dame picking the ball up like near half court, and now you have like a four on three. And I'm watching LeBron. I, I forgot like how much of a force LeBron can be on defense when he's when he wants to. He he hasn't really done it much this year, so you kind of forget. But I think him and AD are probably the best at this, and they're on the same team, kind of defending two guys at the same time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the Warriors, I think he's played them a million times. He knows their plays. But even with even with the Blazers, man, he was blowing up those uh, those coverages. So I saw like the peak of what they can be. They're not going to do that every night. They can't do that every play. But just seeing their trapping scheme, something they have in their wallet that they've used last year that's worked. Um, I think I think it's really cool to see it see it work in these two games because I feel like they really tried. And again, this is all without Anthony Davis, who to me is the the number one in this who protects all things at the rim and around around the basket but uh yeah i wanted to see like your thoughts on that because i i really felt like they wanted to defend those guys dame had like 28 or some crazy number in the first half and then uh, they really shut all that off in the second half and from there i think they took that into the warriors game and that warriors game was over within the first five minutes it was not a contest um so i I want you to know like were were those shots that they were missing like because they were giving some open looks i think andrew wiggins had a few open threes and all that but again i feel like they can control it right if you just let steph and dame run high screen or roll they're gonna kill your drop coverage and they're gonna kill your switches but if you can kind of control who's getting the shots i think uh because i was listening to the warriors broadcast and they were like oh they're just missing open looks i was like well there's a reason those guys are open right Mm. making sure wiggins is the one taking the the three with the hard closeout. So I kind of want to hear your thoughts kind of on that. So first of all, as far as missing open looks go, I talked about this specifically with Tommy yesterday, and it's actually a problem with a strictly analytical approach to, uh, to shot evaluation because they'll call a shot a wide open shot because there's no defender within six feet, but it doesn't account for how that wide open shot was generated. So, right. uh, or who it is. So for instance, like if the shot is generated, in uh, against a super physical defense that chases you off the line and forces you into a couple of, of, of attacked closeouts, by the time you're open, there's a fatigue element, you know, in addition to the, the selective leaving of guys open. So uh, when you look at it's, I don't think it's necessarily a fair indicator of, of, uh, of shot quality to just say, oh, we had this many wide-open shots. Because if those wide-open shots are all in fatigued situations and all given to average-to-below-average shooters, it's actually good defense. And it always bothers me when analytics guys will undercut a defense by saying, like, oh, well, they're actually performing 
way above uh, uh, their expected three-point shot quality defensively, so they're benefiting from luck. So this defense actually sucks. Like that to me is that to me is dishonest, and it just it just glosses over some basic uh, 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 you know principles of the way basketball actually works. And as far as the trapping scheme goes, I brought this up earlier. You know the uh we talk about how teams are going to inevitably make lebron and ad be passers right that's just part of how playoff basketball works well the truth of the matter is is the lakers have to do the same thing to these other teams especially in the western conference when you've got dame and you've got jamal murray and you've got steph curry and you've got you know whether it's De'Aaron fox that you see in a play-in game or in the first round if they happen to sneak in or there are just all of these super super quick guards that are great at uh, at creating shots i mean lou williams is a guy that they'll probably do it to some in the uh, uh uh in the clipper series but the truth of the matter is is like that's their version of what some of these other teams are doing to lebron and ad when teams are doubling lebron in the post or doubling ad in the post that's what the lakers are doing to these guards at the point of attack in these pick and rolls and so what i always look at it as is you're you're accepting the fact that you're going to give up a certain amount of shot quality, whether it's a wide open shot for an Andrew Wiggins or, you know, a Nick Batum or whoever it is that ends up getting the shot. However, what you're hoping is that the overall rhythm of the offense gets thrown off by the fact that their star player who usually controls everything is suddenly not getting the normal shot attempts and a bunch of inferior players are shooting the ball more frequently. You hope that that throws them off. And then secondly, this is something that you and I have talked about at length. The Lakers thrive in chaos. They do. And so, you know, the trap, the key with the trap is uh, if you aggressively trap out front, and you force a Steph or a Dame to throw a looping, like sidearm, kind of over-the-top pass to the short roll guy, that time that it takes for that pass to connect is what allows you to pre-rotate or essentially like jump the gun in your rotations and give yourself an advantage. And it almost allows for that second defender on the on Dame to get into the flow and get back into the rotation. That's what's so bad about this kind of half-ass thing that they did for most of the first part of the season where it's not a trap, but it's not drop coverage, and you're basically just in no man's land because now that pass to the short roll guy is a pocket pass. And right. that hard bounce pass into that gap hits that guy and you can't pre-rotate and now you're a step behind through the whole process and it just puts you at a disadvantage but the Lakers extensively used that specific scheme against uh, Portland last year and against Houston in the playoffs and it worked then they had a problem with with Denver having to do with the fact that Jokic was so good in that short roll so what they did and this is what's so genius about it is they put LeBron in that action with Anthony Davis. And so they would run Jokic, Murray, pick and roll, and they would just switch it. Mm-hmm. And now Jamal Murray, there's a whole highlight reel of film of him trying to attack Anthony Davis and LeBron in these isolations and, and not getting good shots. you know. And so that's what's so devastating about what they do is they can trap you and in, in survive in rotations. And if you're beating that, here are two of the best defensive players in the world when they're engaged, and we're just going to put them on your two best players. Now good luck running that sort of action. Okay, you want to bring our worst defender into the action? Cool. I bet you he's on your worst offensive player. And your worst offensive player isn't smart enough to consistently beat us in that short roll position because that's the key. What makes the Warriors' short roll work out of those traps 
is Draymond because he's making the first play. What's making it work for Denver is Jokic because he's making the first play. Portland, Nurkic is pretty good at it, but anybody else they put in that spot, like, like Cantor just can't make enough plays out of that position. And so you actually, that's what's so beautiful about putting a LeBron and AD pairing on your two best playmakers is now you've got to run that action with an inferior playmaker. And a guy who's a little bit slow making a read in a four-on-three, that's all it takes for your defense to recover at that point. And the truth of the matter is, this is what's so nice about having LeBron and AD too, is LeBron and AD are so big and physical that I don't care how many doubles you send their way, they're still getting 25 to 30 points because of their physicality around the rim. And uh, there are specific spots on the floor that it's suicide to double. But like a guy like Dame or a guy like Steph, like when you trap them, they literally have to give it up. They don't have an option that's like, oh, I'll just go post up. Because that's the thing. If you try to trap LeBron and pick and rolls, he's just going to go post up where it's a better spot for him to attack double teams. Guys like Steph and Dame can't do that. And so that, that's kind of what I think is so fascinating about the trapping defense is it's a specific way to neutralize a star and force them to play four on three in the back end. And as long as you can force them to play four on three with an inferior initiator or you can switch that action altogether, it allows them to shut down these teams. That's why I think they looked so unbelievably dominant at stretches in the playoffs last year. Right. And I like how you say like Anthony Davis kind of raises the ceiling for this defense, right? He's not like the... The anchor is the speed, right, in, in their guards. Their guards are fast as hell. Caruso, KCP, Schroeder, those guys are running around chasing. Um, I saw them defending Dave. They're the, labor, they're the labor-intensive guys in the defense. They do the most work. Exactly. And it's all about your point-of-attack defense, right? If you're just getting blown by, it's going to be hard to do anything. Um, but they really keep guys in front of them. They stay They stay in front. And uh, that's, the, that's the basis of this defense. And you have LeBron also chasing around. I uh, posted a few clips against the Warriors, and they just took away every single action. So the Warriors, the Warriors are a motion offense. I know Warrior fans get mad at that a lot that the Warriors are a motion offense, but they're a super heavy motion offense, and uh, I feel like that's where they have some wins because those are hard to defend. Um, but the Lakers are really good at switching and getting out, and I feel like that's where THT struggles, right? Because he's he's having trouble with that kind of communicating and getting on the same page. But when you have five guys that know what they're doing, this team really locks in. And uh, I was looking at, I think they still have like the third best defense. Anthony Davis has missed 14 games. And in those 14 games, they still have like third best defense in the league, um, which is incredible. So uh, they have the first right now, obviously overall, but just looking at it in totality with the games he's missed. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see how they, they keep moving with that, but it, it was awesome to see them lock in because they haven't locked in in very many games this year, um, but seeing seeing it against Portland and Golden State, I feel like was a a template they can use uh, going going forward. Well, and so to the to the point of what you're talking about with the with the defense, like there's there is a delineation in my opinion between like effort based uh, regular season success, scheme based success, and then like a playoff ceiling success. So, for instance. Right. They're in the regular season over the last two years, the Lakers have actually been better defensively without AD on the floor. Now, I don't think AD actually hurts their defense. That's silly. That's not at all what I'm saying. But in the regular season, the effort of the guards at the point of attack and in rotation and Frank Vogel scheming and things along those lines, the consistency on that end, allow them to be an elite defensive team without Anthony Davis. But then there's this whole other side of it in the playoffs. And the same thing goes on with offense. We talk about, you and I have talked about this at length, like, Offense is cute. Like what Utah's doing is cute, right? Like they're driving and kicking and they're putting, they're, you know, Rudy Gobert's rolling to the rim and they're generating these threes. Or like what the Bucks have done the last two years is like literally one of the best offenses like ever that we've ever seen. 
the last couple of years. And but then all of a sudden they get in the playoffs and that offense like doesn't work. Like it just doesn't work. And the it's because there's this delineation between the two. Like you can try hard your way into scoring points in the regular season. You can try hard your way into defending in the regular season. But once we get to the playoffs, there has to be like a tangible like like identity to the way that that defense can succeed against the best of the best. And you can see that with the Lakers. With like when with like the the truth of the matter is when push comes to shove, if you've got the Lakers down two one, and you're going into game three, and you think you got a chance to get the win, there in the game is you know, and it's a tie game in the fourth quarter. It's like here's what I know you're going to see: you're going to see Dennis Schroeder hounding your point guard full court. You're going to see Alex Caruso flying around in rotations. You're going to see uh, K- KCP out there flying around in rotations, and you've got LeBron and AD. Good luck, because when that because when that group is out there, there's going to be nothing easy for you uh, on uh, anywhere on the floor. And so, you know that group. I don't even know what their defensive rating is this year when the five of them play together, and it's probably okay because the AD minutes have been weird this year because he hasn't been great. But the truth of the matter is, like when things really come down to that that moment in a game, you know that specific lineup makes sense in the way that they can guard. All three of those guards are super quick and they play extremely hard and they're great at the point of attack. Even Dennis like will fight in a in a post mismatch, you know, at least put it in a position where the guy's a little uncomfortable. You know, but if I the uh uh you know a team like Utah for instance, it's like at the end of the day like do you love Bogdanovich out there, you know, guarding the other team's best player like Royce O'Neal's pretty good, but he's not, you know, he's not that great in those specific matchups. You know, some of the stuff doesn't make sense and translate uh, to the playoffs. And, and, and then good luck on the other end, too, because you know what LeBron and AD are going to do to you offensively with that lineup, you know, with the spacing that it's provided. So it's just different. It's important to draw the line between the two, you know, and, and I like I clearly don't think Anthony Davis hurts their defense in the regular season but <laughs> but it's very it's obvious that what they can do against the best of the best requires him to be on the floor um <laughs> but yeah anyway yeah yeah exactly and their biggest trump card is AD at the five right that's that's the one that no one's no one in the league has yet figured out how to stop and I don't don't see anything that uh, has changed my mind on that him and LeBron with the elite defense at the five them two can just run screen and roll they did it I think against the Bucks to win that game, they haven't really had to go, go to it too much. But yeah, that that's where it goes, and you have to stop that four out of seven. So I, I saw something funny yesterday. Um, uh, Utah, uh, I think it was a Raptors fan was like telling uh, Utah Jazz fans like, "Hey, being the one seed with LeBron in the same conference doesn't really mean much because <laughs> they've they've obviously been destroyed by by LeBron a few times." So um, yeah, seeing seeing LeBron kind of shit on Utah was kind of hilarious considering they're the best team and they have like what eight losses and they've just run through the league. So uh, I'm excited to see them play again. Utah obviously kicked kicked our butt, but uh, I want to see with AD healthy and see how that how that lineup looks uh, going forward. The as far as seeding goes, what matters most to me is not. Uh, getting above Utah. Uh, obviously I, I think it'd be fine. I mean, you don't what you don't want to do is put yourself in a situation where you know, uh, uh a guy's banged up and it has to sit out a game and you lose a game in LA and now you've got to win two games in Utah. Like you don't want to put yourself in that position, especially since knowing Utah, like they'll probably have like 50% capacity fans by the time uh, J- uh May and June come around. So like I, I but but 
Fortunately, like I think the Lakers are only a half game back of being above everybody in the East. I don't know that for sure, but I think they are because yeah. I think Phoenix is one full game ahead of them. And uh, but anyway, so like as long as they can have home court advantage against everyone else, I think it's worth going for. Uh, um, you know, because obviously against the Clippers, they'll probably have home games for every single game. But you know, going into going into Milwaukee in the finals would suck. Like if you had to do that four times, so like why not at least go for it? But I I agree with you. Like Utah. Utah having home court isn't as big of a deal. And quite frankly, as you and I have discussed on this podcast a half dozen times, that it's just the worst possible matchup for them. And I don't think yeah. the Lakers are even the slightest bit scared uh, of that particular matchup. But, but I mean, uh, I, it'll be interesting to see what they go for. By the way, I don't know if you saw, but the alert just came on my phone. Blake Griffin just got bought out. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Let's nice. see. Uh, it says six time all star forward Blake Griffin has agreed to a contract buyout with the Detroit Pistons and will become an unrestricted free agent. Griffin has interest from many of the NBA's top playoff contenders and is expected to make a decision on his next team after conversations with prospective teams in the near future. That's very vague from Woj for the record. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he knows where he's going, in my opinion. Like those kind of, uh, those kind of people really know what they're, know what's coming. No, no, he knows where he's going. I, my gut is telling, like, it's, it's just knowing Blake, uh, why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he come here? Uh, I, there's the thing again, the one thing that would throw it off would be minutes. Like all it takes is a team like Brooklyn calling Blake and being like, dude, you can play as much as you want here. You know, like something stupid, like promising minutes that could throw it off because the conversation with Frank and, uh, and Rob is going to go like this. Hey Blake, you're our backup stretch five. That's what it is. Like the like Blake's not going to take Mark out of the starting lineup. Like he's just not. Yeah. So you're our backup five. You know, there's minutes there, uh, but you're our backup five. But if there's a contender out there that will look at him in the face and be like, dude, you're starting. You're playing 25 plus minutes a night. You know, you can play as much as you want, but if you need rest, we'll rest you, blah, blah, blah. blah. That might be something that, that could throw him out of the mix. Uh, but I certainly would like to, like to see him in L.A. So but quickly, before we get out of here, you had mentioned – so Tommy and I had a conversation about analytics yeah. uh, uh, yesterday. And you had mentioned that you had a, a follow-up to that you, that you wanted to ask. Yeah, because there's a stat that I always see people throw around is this per 36 minutes, right? And I kind of fell into it too. I just um, – I just heard you guys yesterday. I thought it was a good point where you're saying like every shot is in the same shot, right? So you kind of have to uh, kind of fit in fatigue and, you know, um, how long have guys played or who's open or whatever. There's a whole bunch of factors that, you know, numbers will never be able to quantify. And you can work with that with film, right? Those two go together. There shouldn't be some big war onto it. But like the 36 minutes, I think it's fine for like players who play 30 minutes, right? That to me, it makes sense. It's really weird. And I see like, I saw like a James Wise, well, James Wisen, which, you know, I think he's going to be good, but I saw like a James Wisen per 36. Someone posted he, he'll he be like 20 and 12 in per 36. I'm like, he's never playing 36 minutes. So like show, showing that James Wisen has averages 20 and 12 on a per 36 just doesn't make sense to me. Or like I saw with the Clippers that they posted like a Luke Kennard per 36 was like 16, uh, four and like, you know, and like 40% shooting. I'm like, he's never playing 36 minutes. He averages 19. It doesn't really make sense to me to put a per 36 out for guys who will never play 36 minutes. Like it, it just, it's confusing to me when I see that, like with the LeBron or like a Paul George or a Kawhi, those guys are going to play 30 minutes. So their per 36 kind of makes sense. It fits into their rotation, right? So you can kind of, you can kind of uh, predict what their numbers will be in that kind of 
because 36 minutes is kind of like the average what a superstar or like a full rotation starter plays, right? So it makes sense. In the regular too. season, yeah. Exactly. But when I see like rookies have per, like rookies that don't play at all getting per 36 minutes who average like 15 minutes a game, basketball just doesn't work like that where like if you get 10 points in 10 minutes, it means you'll make, you'll get 20 in like another 15. I just know, like that's what's confusing. What do you think about that kind of stat? That, that stat's kind of strange to me when I, when I see it put out for guys who don't play rotation minutes and i see like per 36 for them like yeah that looks great that looks awesome you can do that with any rookie in the league right i'll go do their per 36 it's just it doesn't really make sense for guys who will never get that that minutes this year so for me personally i've used it uh uh mostly referring to stars who have been playing in lower minutes so for instance think like Giannis last year think like lebron yeah. early this year when lebron was playing like 33 minutes a game or whatever that makes sense where, where i agree with you that it's not necessarily the same translation for a, a rookie playing 10 minutes a night but here's where i would look at per 36 and i don't i don't think it's perfect but I think it is an indicator of your overall activity in those minutes. So let me give you an example. So for instance, like I played pickup basketball games this morning. One of the things I love about these pickup basketball games that I play with this particular group of guys is we like quick games. So we play twos and threes to nine. So literally a game can end in three possessions if you don't defend. And what's interesting is like, you know, I might average, you know, four or five points per pickup game. But if there was a way to quantify it, as a per 36, it would give an indicator of how productive I was in that specific, uh, hang on one second. I'm having a nightmare, a set of luck uh, in the last couple of weeks with my computers. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> um, anyway, so the, it gives, it, uh, it gives a general indicator of what your productive, uh, your production level was in those minutes. So, uh, again, if you if we use Alex Crusoe as an example, Alex Crusoe is going to be more impactful, not even statistically, but just in his overall effort and stuff. He's going to be more productive in a 17 minute outing than he is in a 27 minute outing. We've learned this now. You know, exactly. that, that was one of the things that was revealed during this uh, Dennis Schroeder injury. However, you know, uh, if if uh, if a guy if if a guy if I play Tristan Thompson off the bench in Boston and I play him for 15 minutes a night. And in those 15 minutes, he's getting 10 points and 8 rebounds. I don't think that's a fair a, a fair uh uh you know representation of what he accomplished in that game. Because what he really accomplished in that game is per 36 he averaged like or he put up like 26 and 14 or whatever it is. I, I'm not sure what the conversion is there. But the, the and what that means is in his 15 minutes he was a wrecking ball. Now right. that doesn't that doesn't translate to him having been able to be a wrecking ball for 30 minutes, but it does show me that he was a wrecking ball for those 15 minutes. So it's as with any stat, it's imperfect. You know, plus right. minus is imperfect. I hate plus minus in a single game, uh, but I do believe in plus minus in the long term because I think that clearly shows that when this guy's on the floor, the team has success for whatever reason, even if it's against specific lineups and with specific role players next to him or specific supporting cast. But, you know, uh, one of the things I like about per 36 is it's an indicator of activity. So for instance, Damian Jones, like it'd be interesting to take a look at it and I'll look it up real quick, but it's, it's uh, uh, a quick indicator. Let's see real quick. Let's look up Damian Jones. So if Damian Jones is playing super limited minutes, so he's been playing 10.3 minutes per game with the Lakers. Yeah. It shows that he's only averaging four point. 
seven rebounds. But if I take it as a per 36, he's at 14 and nine. Right. So I can relatively assume that his production in his limited minutes mimics that of a 14 and nine type of player that that's not amazing, but that's, that's backup big type of production, right? So I'm get I I'm getting backup big level production out of Damian, uh, uh, Damian Lee in the, or like Damian Jones in those specific minutes. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I don't think there's no place for it, obviously. And I think it does have some, like if you have a guy that's playing 25 minutes, I guess you can kind of extrapolate that out to 36, right? Well, he would be in a rotation. I just see it used a lot today for like, um, narrative base and like, Oh, uh, let's compare this rookie who's playing 15 minutes to the per, his per 36 to like Jimmy Butler and be like, oh yeah, they're both averaging like 17 and eight, you know, in these, th-. I'm like, that's not how um, this, <laughs> that, that comparison should kind of go. So that's, that's my main issue with it. I see it used a lot for rookies, especially because rookies aren't going to get crazy minutes. Right. So like when you do a per 36 for a guy making, who's doing 15 minutes, who has no reputation at all in the league it's kind of hard to um it's kind of hard to see that um in the stats so obviously with any stat you have to kind of think about it with the film and with everything that you see obviously alex crusoe you can tell his activity obviously is high so when you go to a per 36 you kind of be like okay he gets like one steal every 15 minutes i can kind of see him getting three steals in like that minutes you know so that that's where my issue with it is just using it for players in comparisons that it just doesn't makes sense for um but i mean I'm, I'm not mad at every stat has its flaws every stat has its positives i'm a person who really likes defensive rating a lot of people don't i feel like there's stats that you like and don't like kind of um in your philosophy and stuff like that so that that was my main thing that's the thing that i thought of when i was hearing you guys talk about it because i thought it was interesting that there's a lot of stats out there there's i mean there's a stat for a stat right today you can have stats for stats so you can kind of get lost you can kind of get lost in that um and yeah, so that was my main point is that uh, it's kind of interesting seeing those kind of things. Like a lot of people, like there's, a, I think Andy Bailey, who's like the Utah guy, he really likes per 75 possessions. Like he does everything with per 75, which I guess is like the the average amount of possessions in like a full game, I'm guessing. So he yeah, really goes Per 100 that. possessions would be closer to a full game and no one plays a full game. Because I think the it, average it, NBA game has like 107 possessions per team or it, something like that. Exactly. Right? So that kind of trips people out. And I'm like, I understand it where he's going with it, but um, he uses a lot to be like, okay, Gobert would average like 25 and 15 on like a per 75, you know, and things like that. So um, it's kind of funny just to see it used in that way. And I, I feel like there's a there's a better way to kind of look at it. And again, we're all kind of improving here on our stats, but I, I just thought it was interesting. I heard, I thought of that when I, when I heard you guys do that conversation. Can you hear me or am I cut out? You're good. Yeah, okay. I can hear you. I'm getting the little symbol on my screen. With, uh, <laughs> all heck is about to break loose with my Wi-Fi. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. Using it to compare players is foolishness because there's no two situations that are like, I, like I said, I just like using it uh, specifically to kind of gauge you know, uh, if you're a fan of a team and you want to gauge, you know, uh, how impactful a player has been in a limited role, I think it'll give you a general idea. Um, the, I, uh, and this is the last thing I'll talk about and then we'll get you out of here, but like the defensive rating is scoreboard. Mm-hmm. Like offensive rating is the scoreboard. That's not, that's not an advanced metric. All that is, is a scoreboard weighted per possessions. Like, right. guess what? Like, if you have a positive net rating in a basketball game, you are guaranteed to win as a team. 
That like guaranteed, right. like one thousand million percent of the time, it's not. It is not an advanced metric, and it, it, it by any stretch of the imagination. The only thing I don't like with advanced uh, with offensive rating and defensive rating is every single year there are a bunch of teams that are at the top of the offensive rating that don't defend, and every single year there are teams like the Lakers and other teams who defend extremely well, but they are more middle of the pack offensively, or you know bottom of the top ten or whatever it is. And the reason why is because it takes energy to do both. You know, teams that don't defend usually have better legs on offense and they're better at scoring points. And teams that don't score are better at defending or teams that defend at a really high level struggle offensively because they're fatigued. And usually the game will, they'll strangle the pace in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there are, uh, there's nothing wrong with defensive rating or offensive rating in, in, in a vacuum because all they are is literally the scoreboard. Uh, my yeah. biggest, my biggest, you know, it's not a convoluted stat, you know, like Raptor is or lebron or whatever those metrics that you see floating around as of late like those are deeply deeply convoluted stats that are trying to attach a single number to something that uh uh, to a specific role on a basketball team uh you kind of cut off I think you're back. There you go. All righty. I'm back. I apologize, everyone, for the Wi-Fi stuff. I was talking with Raj beforehand. I think I have it figured out. I just have to order a specific uh, piece of equipment to get me back up and running to where it's not a problem. But I appreciate everybody bearing with me through the process. Um, real quickly, before I get you out of here, uh, tweet from Mark Stein. The Lakers, Clippers, Nets, and Heat, and Warriors are the five teams that have most publicly expressed interest in Blake Griffin at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's kind of predictable, right? All kind of contenders or semi-contenders. Um, also, big markets, right? He doesn't want to go to no, go no East market, uh, small market team. So kind of makes sense. I still think he's going to want to go to a winning contender. Like he wants to go to one of the championship teams. Um, I, think, I think it's going to be Brooklyn or the Lakers. I don't think he's going to the Clippers. Might be. I just can't see him going back there after being sent away. But uh, we'll we'll see. I think he's coming. I think you're right. I think you. I think you said you're kind of feeling him coming here too. I think it just makes too much sense um, uh, for them too to kind of try it out. So that's. I think he'll be here. We'll see. Um, maybe we will find out today. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I hope we find out today. We'll see. Or at least get some intel. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But I'm going to get you out of here before my Wi-Fi cuts out again. <laughs> um, sure. uh, let's let's send out a tweet, uh, you know, Monday, Tuesday next week, just uh, asking for some mailbag questions, and then we'll do uh, we'll do some grades and some just overall kind of like rehashing of the first half of the season from the Lakers. Raj, as always, I really appreciate you, man, and I will see you next Friday. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Thank you.